0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schoff.
1: Boy, it sure seems like technology has really taken off lately, huh? I say that in the most literal sense because now you can go to your local Target or Walmart and buy a toy that uses technology that was unthinkable only a few decades ago. To think when I was a kid that I would be able to take a remote control and manipulate a toy helicopter high into the air and even watch the flight once it comes back down? No way. That's the thing for sci-fi movies, not real life. Well, here we are, and now my own kids have drones with AI that fly themselves, Just by holding their hand to the side below and above, their three inch diameter drone can stay in flight for as long as the battery can stay at a constant charge. To kids, that's normalcy. To adults, that is ludicrous. New technology is amazing, right? Here's the problem. It may be new to us, but it certainly isn't new to the world. In fact, it's old news because the Nazis were using drones in 1944. Yep, you heard me right. Welcome to The Missing Chapter Podcast, everyone. Let's get to it.
0: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schoff. We're sitting down to a good cup of coffee provided by Duncan. falling for maple. Uh, Very nice maple syrupy sort of uh, taste and and, uh, aroma to it. It's very good. It's one of our favorites. Uh, Phil. Uh, before we get to your story for today, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that it is, in fact, Veterans Day. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, for for both of us, obviously, we've had uh, people in our family, family members who've served in the military. We've had many uh, former students who've taken up arms and and served in the military. And for all of them, we're very blessed. We're very grateful. And we say thank you. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why you and I both uh, pride ourselves in
1: teaching every sort of aspect of any battle, of any war. Um, and we also tell our kids, students and our and our own personal kids that, that, hey, anytime you see a soldier, anytime you see a veteran, whether it's a Korean hat, uh, a Vietnam hat, whatever it is, make sure you go and say thank you because it allows us to do what we wanna do in our lives. And we were not forced to, to join the military because of the sacrifices that some of our veterans have made. Um, and we get to tell my daughters, your sons that, hey, go thank that soldier, go go thank that veteran because now daddy
0: doesn't have to go to war. Right, yeah. very well said and, and very true. Now, you have a story for us today that's you know in classic Missing Chapter fashion, uh, one that I think people are not gonna be aware of and, and you're gonna be surprised by, and it does have an element of the military to it. It does, it does. It was one of those things where as I'm uh, you know making dinner for everybody and I'm,
1: I'm listening to some things in the background, um, it was one of those moments where I had, to, I had to say, wait, wait, what did they just say? And it wasn't even about this very topic. It was something that that somebody said within a documentary, and I can't even—I don't remember what the documentary was—or else I'd, I'd be sharing it. Um, and I rewound it, and it was a very quick little blurb sentence, hey, kind of like it was in you know the German territory of this. So I—I I, I said, "Oh my gosh, that I've never heard that before." So I did some research, did some googling, and now I'm just down this rabbit hole. Um, all of my tabs are all over the place right now, so I'm ho- hopefully this I can make this organized because there's so much to this. It, it could honestly be a two-parter. I'm going to do my best though to kind of narrow it down and funnel it down from something very very broad uh, to something a little more specific. So let's um, let's go to Wired.com here. I'm actually going to read directly from this because I think okay. the author does a really really good job of setting up. Uh, What I don't think I could, I could set up a story like this. So it says the early hours of June 13th, 1944, unseasonably cold in East London on a high plateau, British firemen awoke in darkness to the sounds of air raid sirens. So you can imagine that, that kind of wake up call. They trudged from their watchman's hut and crossed the tarred parade uh, ground and roadway toward the small brick concrete roofed fire station of their army base. They were used to the sirens. They knew the routine, but something that morning, it felt different. Gunfire was echoing in the gloom, but it sounded distinct from the usual volleys. Normally, Londoners could hear the deep booms of the 3.7-inch cannons uh, that the anti-aircraft crews used to bring down the Luftwaffe bombers. But today, the clatter was lighter from 40-millimeter uh, guns suggesting a lower-flying target. Searchlight beams are crossing the low-hanging clouds. Locked briefly in a glowing ray, and enemy aircraft rushed by them at incredible speed, one fireman recalled. It was far faster than British Spitfires or even the Luftwaffe's breakneck uh, aircraft. Crimson flames jetted from the the clacking object. So it's something that they thought they knew. Mm-hmm. Once they were awakened, they kind of came to and said, uh, this is not your typical aircraft. It was much faster, has a different sound. Uh, was it an ultra fast German bomber uh, executing a sneak attack? Was it Soaring over St. Paul's Cathedral, where was it coming from? It was. Uh, they think it was headed towards the, the, the heart of the city and raced over the ships floating on the Thames downstream of the Tower Bridge where supplies were being loaded for France. Gunners on the armed ships opened fire with all they had, illuminating the dark early morning with tracer bullets. Dashes drawn in space like so many bioluminescent discharges. West of the Isle of Dogs, the flame from the back of the craft died and the engine quieted the firemen waited. It felt like an eternity for the impact sound of the, quote, crashing pilot. After hearing a distant explosion, they returned to sleep. So something just doesn't add up to all these all these witnesses. Um, people who glimpsed at the four Nazi aircraft that reached English soil that morning came to similar conclusions as the firemen. The objects looked like crippled planes almost. From below, observers saw, quote, nothing but a black shape with sheets of flames spurting out behind it. Dark silhouettes appeared over Farms, like burning black swords, knifing through the night. It was not until a few days later, when 73 of them reached Greater London, that citizens began to learn the truth of the German, quote, buzz bombs. Mm. They were V 1s, 4,900 pound winged missiles flying on autopilot. So these were essentially, uh, as the London newspapers announced, the arrival of, quote, pilotless warplanes. And it was essentially the beginning of. Of a cruise missile this is the first time we've seen the cruise missile and it was because of the nazis now in the first two weeks of the siege the german air force launched an estimated 1585 what they call drones interesting uh over 1100 of which successfully crossed the channel british royal air force pilots managed to shoot down only 315 of them 558 struck Greater London. So the success rate of these new, uh, incredibly powerful, quote, drones was something that, that our allies could never anticipate.
0: And Phil, we've done enough of these episodes where we've talked about technology that we thought was new and revolutionary and, and you know, unique to our time was in fact developed in one form or another, you know, decades prior. That, right. Like to hear you talk about drones used in the 1940s, I, I'm I'm surprised, but I'm not like entirely shocked. Yeah. Because yeah. I, the technology and the scientists that were working on both sides, the allies and, and the Axis powers, like they, they really were doing amazingly quick work and developing things that the world had never seen in a short period of time. That when you say this, I think to myself, that's crazy. They had drones in the 1940s, but it doesn't really like it doesn't shock me to the point where I'm like, well, how could they have done that?
1: Right. Do you right. know what
0: I mean? Yeah, with
1: it, it, some of the episodes you've done, the Manhattan Project, right. some of the technology that's come out from that just by experiment, uh, just by R&D. Um, it's pretty astounding the fact that this is in the 40s and, and the Nazis specifically mm-hmm. are, are flying these cruise missiles with incredible accuracy. Yeah, it, be, it's it, Between
0: it's, wartime, between our space program later on, Yes, this technology, I think, has been around a lot longer than the general public. Kind of realize. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And, and you would is, think to yourself too. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but it's I, fine. How really could you? The technology for the drones exists, but from the British perspective, how do you shoot down these these it's a great uh, point. These drones? Because you don't have the technology then to retaliate or you know to, to intercept these things. And that that's part of the the modern warfare game is mm-hmm. you have all this new technology, even current day, right?
1: Present day, you have all these new technologies with with present day drones that can be flown through your cell phone. You know what I mean? So why our enemies are are probably you know conjuring up all sorts of weapons, and that's going to conjure up our own government, our own defense department, to say, "Hey, we need a we need a defense weapon for mm-hmm. this." So it's a constant war game. It's it's almost like a, um, I don't know, a, a permanent cold war between yeah. our adversaries and us. And You're- this is really what sparks a lot of the new technology yeah. uh, that we see today. So from warfarehistorynetwork.com, dot um, they do a very good job of describing. The aftereffect of this experience. So remember, this is June of 1944. So someone, and we we don't know who, but they said if uh, someone said, and some officer in Washington D. said, if we stuffed an unmanned bomber full of explosives and by radio control or some other method, flew it directly into a target, that's pretty brilliant. Mm. So how do we take an unmanned aerial vehicle and aircraft, which we you know know as a UAV, and drive it into a target and it's you know maybe a plane that's just radio controlled how could we do that the idea sounded great especially since the us and britain too was losing so many aviators on bombing runs over enemy held territory but how do we accomplish it so engineers began working on the concept but discovered that it was pretty much impossible given the technology at the time how do you get a pilotless bomber to taxi take off by remote control this site says the idea then evolved to a pilot and co-pilot which this is where it gets crazy Taking off in an explosive-laden B-17 or B-24, gaining altitude, then bailing out over England while trailing aircraft control the plane by radio signals. Finally, crashing into the target. So, <clears throat> to put it in another, another sense, another realm, you would essentially have two planes take off at the same time. The first plane that's taking off is is just filled with bombs. Okay. You have the pilots eject from the, from the plane, mm-hmm. you have the, the mothership behind it, who had taken off second. Now controlling that first aircraft by radio. It makes total sense, right? So you have the two pilot and co-pilot bail out. You also have to have the same distance, uh, a certain distance mm-hmm. between the, the, the first, the first plane and the second plane. So obviously the, the pilots aren't running into each other. Um, and then having the, the co-pilot and the pilot safely come down to ground. And at the same time, having the mothership control. By radio in the nineteen forties, the front
0: airplane. So essentially, you have the same concept that we use here in two thousand twenty three. We're trying to save human lives. Yes, we're trying to create things that are very destructive, very accurate. Um, it's just that the technology has since advanced from nineteen forty four to to twenty twenty three. But it's I'm I'm amazed at how closely related they are. Right. Despite being separated by you know, 80 plus years. Right. And and some of the technology that we have today with drones
1: is the idea that if we have a drone and it's not weaponized, that can mm-hmm. conceivably be the weapon, you know, drive a drone into enemy territory. And that's something that that we as the United States in 2023 are, are very weary of. But it's something I mean, gosh, 70, 80 years ago is something that they were aware of, too. So They started in August of 1944 to do some test runs. So this is two months after that first experience of the V-1 and V-2 missiles. Um, On August 4th, 1944, the Air Force put the concept to the test against hard-to-knock-out targets like the V-1, uh, submarine pens, deep underground installations, and what was called Operation Aphrodite. Hmm. So this is the focus, Operation Aphrodite. The first test run didn't go well, to say the least. The first B-15 took to the air. The pilots bailed out safely. The plane, however, spiraled into the ground with a massive explosion near the coastal village of Orford, almost killing that entire village. So that didn't go well. Um, But like most test runs, we kind of expect some failures. The second plane developed problems also. There was an issue with the radio control system that crashed. The pilot, unfortunately, of this one was also killed when he bailed out too soon. So there are a lot of issues going on with this Operation Aphrodite, to say the least. A third B-17, same thing that happened, the second B-17. Issues of the radio control system, the pilot bailing out too soon. They had now added a fourth plane. They're not giving up yet. That fared a little bit better, although it crashed about 1,500 feet short of its target. Massive hardened V-2 site um, in a region of France did very little damage. Completely unsuccessful. Three days after that fourth plane crash now, I mean, you got to think how many millions of dollars are we, are we wasting here? Not wasting, but at least testing. Three days later, Aphrodite was repeated. Same thing, mm-hmm. very disappointing results. Two planes crashed in the, the sea off of England while a third was shot down um, over somewhere in France. Uh, I, can't, I don't know what that place is, but third test resulted in a B-17 crew member dying when something went wrong during his parachute jump. The plane continued on its destination, but it was shot down before it reached its target. This is an absolute 100% in all things considered, a failure. On September 3rd, 1944, so it's it's a little bit less, just about a day or two shy of a month after this program was initiated. An Aphrodite B-17 attempted to attack a U-boat at the small German coastal town. Um, at a small German coastal town, but the U.S. Navy controller accidentally crashed the plane into a nearby island. I mean, I don't see any successes here. Uh, usually, if there's a failure, you can figure out what went wrong. It just seems to me that they're they're compounding this problem to the point where it's inevitable. There's so ultimate many failure. there's
0: so many variables, human variables, right? Technology variables that for for this to go, you know, right, everything has to be working and and uh, and no glitches. It just seems like there's so many things at work here that. And I th- I think what's what's kind of remiss here. It, we we have to acknowledge
1: at least. I mean, you have four, five, six, in some accounts, maybe eight different test flights. Mm-hmm. You have some brave, brave soldiers yeah. going on to these things and like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it out. I'll mm-hmm. test it out. This has been unproven, un, unmanned. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll launch myself from a perfectly good airplane right. knowing there's something behind me mm-hmm. uh, hot on my tail. It, it's just, it's insane to me. These test pilots are, are just a different breed. Um, eight days after that, that last Aphrodite B-17 attacking that U-boat and going down, in one more attempt, they tried to hit a submarine. Another radio-controlled B-17 comes close, but it was down, down by just basic ground fire. Mm-hmm. So in all intents and purposes, this is a, a major failure. Now, a former pilot was quoted in saying, we didn't have any missiles, and so we were going to make missiles out of our war-weary B-17s. Have a pilot take it off, set it up on automatic pilot, and the automatic pilot would then be controlled by a mothership flying at a higher altitude. And the mothership would control the baby ship to the target and dive dive it in and obliterate, hopefully. But that never happened, unfortunately.
0: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right. Welcome back to the missing chapter podcast. It's Phil Hornder here with Phil Schoff. We're back from the break. Phil, I guess, you know, like we said in the beginning, we've talked about military technology being ahead of the time. And then later on, we kind of come back to it and, you know, it's, is it the technology that catches up? If this doesn't go well, I'm curious as to see what happens with your early forms of drones. If this didn't go well, was it just pretty much put on the back burner and forgotten about?
1: Kind of sounds like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there is there is kind of like this um, R&D failure is never a failure kind of idea. Right. But... I think it's one of those things where it's like, hey, listen, you know, we, we tried the cat thing. Yeah. right? We <laughs> talked about it a couple episodes ago. Yep, uh, That didn't work. Um, Ten, twenty million dollars into that. So let's push that back. Uh, this, unfortunately, I think is going to have its same fate.
0: That's what I'm wondering. If it's just you invest so much money and also human life, which you touched on earlier on, too. I mean, just reach a point where it's like, listen, this isn't going where we anticipated. We don't want to invest anything else.
1: Well, speaking of human life. OK. There was something that... Um, during the commercial break that I mentioned to you. And there's a little bit of twist, a little bit of historic connection here between the fate of Operation Aphrodite and a famous person or a famous family, I should say. Okay, so this is from warhistoryonline.com. It says, although there were many deaths during Operation Aphrodite, the most famous was that of US Navy Lieutenant Joseph Kennedy Jr. Wow. Wow. the older brother of, of course, John F. Kennedy. Um, it was on August 12th, 1944. So remember, it's only two months after that original uh, observation and witness mm-hmm. of those V-1 and V-2 bombers from the Nazis. He was assigned to a modified B-24 to attack a V-3 site. He and Lieutenant Wilford John Willie took off from RFA Fairsfield, and unfortunately disaster struck within only 18 minutes. Kennedy and Willie had just prepared to hand over control of the aircraft who was accompanying them, removed the pin to arm their explosives when the bomber unexpectedly exploded. And then it was later determined that um, the torpedo or whatever you want to call it, detonated prematurely. Wow. Yeah, they call it a torpex, which is kind of um, a military term for what is almost like a torpedo, but it's essentially a a bomb that's a torpedo that's in, in the air. So the last words Kennedy uttered were, spade flush, the code to let the other crew know he and Willie were about to eject. It's believed both men died instantly with a crewman and an accompanying aircraft uh, commenting, quote, nothing larger than a basketball could have survived the blast. So, yeah. So Willie is from New Jersey. He kind of, and this is a a weird insight here, quote, pulled rank over James Simpson, Kennedy's regular co-pilot, so he could fly the mission. Jeez. Yeah. So with Operation Aphrodite already becoming a failure, you add a name like... Yeah. Joseph Kennedy to that list. And so, of so course, after
0: that, was it pretty much the end of the program?
1: Pretty much, okay. yeah. Um, nine-year-old Mick muddett I'm going to say, uh, a resident of nearby the nearby city, told the reporter sixty years after this crash that he and his brother were watching the formation flying about two thousand feet above them. He said, all of a sudden, there was a tremendous explosion, and the Liber- Liberator aircraft was blown apart with pieces falling in all directions over New Delight Wood. At, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce that that city name. But he also noted, I vividly remember seeing burning wreckage falling earthward while engines with propellers still turning, leaving comet-like trails of smoke, continued along the direction of flight before plummeting down. A Ventura broke high to starboard and the lightning spun away to port, eventually to regain control at treetop height um, over a hospital. And while I watched Spellbound, a terrific explosion reached Dresser's Cottage in the form of a loud double thunderclap and was all quiet except for the drone of the circling, and it's odd that he used the word drone, of the circling Ventura's engines as they remained a few more minutes in the vicinity. But then the fireball changed to an enormous black pall of smoke resembling a huge octopus. The tentacles below indicating the earthward uh, paths of burning fragments. So this is just... I mean something just obviously a nine-year-old would remember for the rest of his life
0: and and what's remarkable to me as you've laid this story out is a a program designed essentially to save american lives at this point has just cost so many lives in the development phase correct that it kind of defeats the purpose
1: yeah that's a really good point and and it's funny because there's a lot of speculation as to really what happened. And why would that why would that bomb just prematurely detonate? There's all, all sorts of fail-safes, even in the 1940s. The cause of the disaster was never conclusively established. But there's suspicion centered on the lack of electrical shielding material on the television camera,
0: hmm.
1: which is very odd. This is thought to have allowed electromagnetic emissions to open a relay solenoid, which in turn set off a detonator and thus the explosives. So you have... This idea that that while they were recording this, um, that it w- could possibly the, the the TV, I that seems to be a, right. a stretch to me, right. but that is one of the reports that is like the official account. Right. Um, and there is multiple theories, but that is one of them.
0: Not only a, another chapter in the missing, you know, textbooks, but also in the uh, in the missing Kennedy family yeah. curse that yeah. seems to build anytime you delve into to stories, you know that start out unseemingly related to the Kennedys. They worked their way in, in bizarre circumstances.
1: And we're actually going to talk about that. Yes. We have something we talked about, uh, an experience ahead over the the past weekend that mm-hmm. we're, we're going to have on the docket here in the next few weeks. Uh, so stay tuned if you're a, uh, a JFK fan or a Kennedy family fan, um, just to, to finish up here, it says that despite the death of such a high profile pilot, many more missions were flown. Um, before operations Aphrodite and Anvil, which was a secondary program, were shut down. So on January 27th, 1945, General Carl Spatz uh, sent a dispatch to Doolittle saying, quote, Aphrodite babies must not be launched against the enemy until further orders. And those orders, well, they were never given. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horinder. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.